This is Coda Radio, episode 90 for February 24th, 2014. Everyone, you're listening to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, GoDaddy, Ting, and DigitalOcean. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week for 90 weeks in a row, ladies and gentlemen, it's our host, Mr. Michael Dominic. Hey there, Michael. Misa back! <laughs> yeah, there he is. Now working. Now all the emails have been answered. There was some plight in the quarter radio audience when Jar Jar. I guess he was on break. He has that written into his contract. You know, you would not believe that man has a legal team. I guess you might. You know, he's a big Star Wars big shot. So I guess it's not too surprising. But that guy. And he all we do is you tell him to do the intros. It's not like it's that big of a deal. But he needs vacation. He needs his time off. Well, we have a good episode today, Mister Dominic. We both have uh, still a little bit of a winter cold. But that's not going to stop us for episode 90. 90 is going to be a fun episode. Uh, Flo, uh, Florian, I guess, and I'll have to ask him when he gets on a Maltic. I'm probably getting that wrong. But he is the CTO and co-founder of a really cool site called CodeShip. And we're going to chat with him later today about what they're doing and about how they're kind of changing up the game and automating a lot of my old job, too, I might say. Now, anything that can really hurt IT admins is it's just fantastic. Uh, oh, oh, come on now. I'm supposed to be representing uh, I, my people. I'm just playing with you. I love you, Chris. Come on. Uh-huh. I know, I know. Well, hey, so um we got we got some good feedback to get to first before we get to our chat with Flo. But uh one thing, I just have a quick coffee radio update. It won't be a long one this week for those of you. We finally got we finally got an email in from somebody who said, Okay, I'm done with the coffee talk. Which was to be expected. It, it's been a few weeks, and it, and, it, and it shattered my expectations that the audience was, for once, in consensus on a topic, and I'm glad. I didn't want... That was really messing with my whole world. Oh, I'm sure. But for those of you who have taken to brewing your own coffee, uh, I wanted to link you to an image I came across this week. I'll have it in the show notes, the top of the follow-up section. The technique of brewing control. Yeah, that's right. It's a coffee brewing control chart, and it gives you your amount of coffee to water ratio and how strong or bitter your coffee is going to be. And you can follow this to get the perfect cup of coffee. And the thing I find interesting about this is one of the things that I've been experimenting with, because, I mean, to tell you, this is a huge jump for me, right? Because I'm coming from the whole K-cup world to, uh, and, you know, you know, just crap coffee you buy from the grocery store and then just put, in a, put it in a little paper thingy and drip for a while. And it was fine, and I would put a bunch of hemp milk in there, and it would taste fine. But one of the things I never really grokked with it, either one of those setups is the fine-grained control of, like, how strong a cup of coffee I want and, like, how flavorful I want it versus whatever else. So, like, today I had, like, a half cup. And it's nice to be able to have, like, direct control over that ratio, and so this chart helps you do that. So there you go. I'll have a link to that in the show. Very good. I, uh... Tell you what, I'm just digging that coffee. All right, Mr. Dominic, are you ready for our first bit of feedback this week? Yes, I am. Okay, this one comes in uh, from Russell, who's trying to make some early career decisions. And uh, we have a contingent out there of audience members kind of in his spot. He says, hey, guys, 
I'm just about to start my final year of my CS degree. I spent the summer interning at IBM, and they've offered to keep me on part-time while I'm at uni. The experience has been good, and I quite like it there, but it's but I've been missing having the free time to work on my personal projects. The extra experience would be good, and the money is nice, but I can't help but feel like I'd learn more by working on personal stuff. Do you have any advice? With all generic compliments about the show, Russell. What do you think, Mr. Dominic? Should he hunker down and do school and a job, or should he sort of uh, go free free willy and uh, jump over that uh, rock face and work on whatever the hell he wants? You know, I think it's going to depend for everybody, and I hate that wishy-washy answer. I would say I would definitely go for a job because the things that you probably don't like about the job are helping you become a better developer. But I'd also say, I mean, can you carve out two hours a week to just, you know, do some freewheeling, whatever? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of my my take on it is like, um, it, <clears throat> it is hard to have your cake and eat it too, but it, at this... At, that job experience on a you know at a company like IBM too that's good on the resume. I mean that is there's a yeah. lot of good things about that. Plus having a little extra cash is good too. So, and also I kind of feel like if you're really passionate about something, you'll probably find the time to even even when you're working and going to school. I know that's hard. And it might be, you know, it might be a lot less than you'd like, but yes. you'll probably still find a way to make it happen. So I'm kind of leaning towards taking the job. With the consideration of, you know, if you really think you've got some something you really want to work on that could make you some money down the road, then maybe, you know, maybe it's worth yeah. reconsidering. Uh, I don't know, Russell. That's a good question. Let us know which direction you go. Both Mike and I think are leaning saying, eh, take the IBM job for now. You could go work at IBM. It's a nice place. Yeah, and like Mike said, you'll get some good methodologies while you're there and yep. uh, some, some good people experience and all those things are beneficial. It's not just the coding stuff. Uh, so I think that's a good one. All right. Uh, so uh, we have a uh, voicemail to get to. Uh, but before we play that, I think I'll say thanks to Ting this week. So that way we have uh, so we have some room when uh, when Flo joins us in a little bit. Now, what is Ting? Ting is my mobile service provider, and I'll tell you why. It's no BS mobile service, no contracts. That means no early termination fee. But the part that really gets me jacked up, I really like this part, is you only pay for what you use. So you, Ting takes your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Whatever bucket you fall into, that's what you end up paying uh, at the end of the month. So, for example, for me, I'm heavier on the data, a little bit on the texting because there's a few things that still text my actual number. Uh, and I really don't use the voice a lot. So for two lines, I'm paying about 30, 35 bucks a month. Now, you think about that. That's a, that's a Nexus 5 and an HTC One for around 30 bucks a month. Here's how you get started. Go to coderadio.ting.com. Ting is... Ting is also probably the leader. I can't, I can't think of anybody that does customer service better than Ting. You can call them at 1-855-846-4389. Try it right now. They're open right now. 1-855-846-4389. And a real person answers the phone. And that person is, in, is empowered to solve your problem right then and there. Uh, if you're working in a team, if you have family members, that kind of peace of mind is invaluable. On top of that, if you're kind of like me where you just prefer to be able to log in and do it online, you know, Disable a line, set up call forwarding, check my minutes, pay a bill, transfer a number, transfer a phone. They have an amazing control panel. Their dashboard is simple, it's intuitive, but yet it's fully functional, and they've paired it with Android and iOS apps where you can also manage the device from there. So it's really about giving you full control but making the process simple enough that you don't have to worry about it. Every Ting plan includes hotspot and tethering. 
when you buy a Ting device, you own that device outright. So that completely flips the value system where you are encouraged to keep a device and get the, get the full life out of it. Since you're not paying into subsidized device that's losing value the longer you have it, even though you're continuing to pay into its original price, that whole model is gone. Ting also just recently lowered their data rates, so you might want to go over to coderadio.ting.com and try out that savings calculator and see how much you would save. And don't forget, Ting also has that early termination relief program. If you're going to get a new phone, just go over to Ting, grab your phone, port your number, and then submit your ETF claim to Ting, and they'll pay up to $75 per line that you had to get canceled. It's Seriously, it's time to get started. Go over to coderadio.ting.com. That lets them know you heard about it here on the Coder Radio program and you appreciate their support of the Coder Radio show. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Coder Radio program and their support of the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. Been happy with my Nexus 5, too. I really recommend it. You can get it directly from the Play Store, guys. You don't have to get it from Ting if you don't want to. Just order your Nexus 5, then order your Ting SIM, and Bob's your uncle. And they they have a fantastic how-to section on their website that walks you through all of it. Or you can buy it directly from Ting as well. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool way they do it. And they're really just about whatever is going to make you happier. All right. Well, we got a, we got a uh, voicemail from Rick. I, I, I think this might be our first voicemail, too, which is super awesome. So go ahead, Rick. Hey, Michael and Chris. Hope you guys are doing well. My question is related more towards software as a business. I'm a current CS undergraduate in the U.S. Since I completed some of my programming courses back in high school, now I'm left in a weird situation that I need some input on. With only one year and a half left towards graduation, I'm currently able to take on some clientele work, but I'm not sure on the legalities on doing so. I know that Mike was a big fan of contracts and bids, but where would I be able to create or buy one of these contracts to offer to my clients? I know that a handshake and a smile will go a long way in the IT field, but in software, it's much different since we are actually creating a product, not deploying one. Looking forward to hearing you guys' reply. By the way, great show. Keep up the good work. Many thanks, <laughs> Thank Rick. you, Rick. Thanks for sending in a voicemail. He just uh, sent that in as an attachment. And what was great about Rick is he covered his bases. He sent a text version and he attached nice. the WAV file. So whichever nice. works best for us. But that was awesome. And since both uh, Mike and I have uh, wrecked throats this morning, it was great to have somebody else talk. So, um, I, you know, I props to Rick for thinking of this before it's too far. He's Before he's too far down the line. Uh, so what do you think about getting started with that whole contract thing? That sounds like, you know, when you don't know a lot about it, that sounds like a massive thing to figure out. Yeah, that can definitely be a massive thing to figure out. Um, you know, I, I would just add, though, unfortunately, you, you, you definitely need it. Now, your contract can be super simple, right? Especially if it sounds like you're kind of in school, you know, you're going to be doing probably small projects. It could just be payment terms termination terms and what exactly the project is pretty simple then don't don't need to overthink it too much at least to get right. started you don't in need fact, to, that's probably yeah. the safer way to go isn't it you know keep it simple so that way you don't create some sort of loophole that you get yourself trapped in or something yeah i mean you don't need to use faux legalese if you're writing it yourself yeah yeah and in fact the client might appreciate just a simple clear easy to understand contract because that honestly is easier for them to trust too exactly i mean that's when i did side work in college that's how i did it, it was like a one two page contract just describing what they wanted payment terms and that sort of outlining it. the expectations yeah. and what you're going to try to do for them and what they're expecting from you and and would you put in something like uh payment terms in there like say oh absolutely i mean that's really really that's the part you care about right when payments are due and if they're not on time which you'll find happens all the time is common what happens right 
how does that change the expectation? Does that change deliverables? Things like that. Right. Very good. Well, there you go, Rick. Uh, good luck with that. And uh, I'm glad you're thinking of that now. Okay. Our, uh, one of our last bits of email this week, uh, Voldly writes in and he says, uh, thanks for the reply last week about Scala. Uh, hey, Mike, could you talk about the process you use for building companies' private projects, i.e. not the ones you do on contract? You mentioned agile development. These are good while working for clients. How would you recommend a small company or a group of developers go through the process of building a software product? So I think he's talking like mm-hmm. internal methodologies. Do you follow a rigid process for an internal project? We do. We're trying. Um it's an evolving thing, I take it. Yeah, so the, the process <laughs> really should be the same, right? The only difference with the client project is you have all the, you know, all the, I mean, if you think about it like program, all the escape paths for if they don't pay you on time. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, an internal project, the escape path is if we're way above budget. Right, right? yeah, right. The internal run cost. Really, I think Agile, or some sort of process, really isn't about, protecting yourself from the client, it's about making sure you get a quality software project on budget and on time. So to say that you wouldn't do that for an internal product doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Right. Um, now, have, I've, I would certainly agree that with internal projects, I'm probably a little more experimental than I am with clients. But yeah, it's your I mean, chance process, to, really. Why not? Right. Yeah, because there's not a lot of risk. I mean, the process is about the same. Yeah. About the same with, with some allowances for experimentation. Might exactly. Be yeah, exactly. that makes sense. All right. Well, I have a, a quick shout out uh, to a cool project that was linked by Kundakul, and I think he's in our IRC today too, and he put it in the subreddit over at coderadio.reddit.com. Yeah, did you know we have a subreddit? Coderadio.reddit.com. Uh, and he links to a web-based emulator. It's assembler. It's a, like an online tool for students to learn the assembly language. It's called YASP, Y-A-S-P. And uh, it looks pretty neat. I... Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, I just loaded the, sorry, I just loaded the webpage for the first time and it's super cool. Oh my gosh, this is actually really, really neat. I, I, uh, so you can find uh, the actual uh, um, interactive uh, uh, tool at demo.yasp.me and this is amazing. So you gotta, if you've, if you've been interested in playing with uh, assembly, go, go to, uh, demo.yasp.me or click the link in the Coda Radio subreddit. That is, that, is, that is so hardcore. I love these browser-based environments now. This is very cool. Uh, so anyways, that's pretty neat. And uh, thanks to Kunda Cool for sending that in. Uh, real quick, before we get to our guest, I want to thank GoDaddy.com. Go over to GoDaddy.com and take advantage of the 295 offer code they're bringing out just, I think, for probably like the next week. I think it's only got a little bit of life left. You can use the promo code 295CODER when you check out. GoDaddy has been a longtime sponsor of the Coda Radio program. And when you get a dot-com at these prices, you got to pull the trigger. I mean, you really do because this is essentially a part of the real estate on the net. If you got a project idea, you've been kicking around for a while and you think you know the name, or if you got a blog, or you got, even if you want to just take advantage of the URL redirection services that GoDaddy makes super simple, that, pro- that promo code is going to get you a dot-com for $2.95. That's cheaper than an app, son. Two ninety five, or it's definitely cheaper than an in-app purchase, dang it. Use the promo code 295CODER when you check out to get the .com for $2.95. There are some restrictions. You can find out more on their website. Uh, and I believe additional .coms are $9.99 per year. So that's a, still a really, really great deal. I mean, $2.95 is outrageous. But even, even $9.99 is still a great deal. And you can 
So you get your first .com for $2.95, and then you get the additional .coms for $9.99. So go over to GoDaddy.com to grab that. It's a fantastic value. And the best part about ordering over at GoDaddy is they are the gold standard in domain name registrars. They're the world's number one domain name registrar. You're working with a client, you're working with a group, you're working with a project, or you just want something you can buy and then come back in a few years and still know you're going to be able to log in and access your account and set up your domain. And that's why you go to GoDaddy. So go over to GoDaddy.com, use the promo code 295CODER before you check out. Get your first .com for $2.95. $2.95. Get additional .coms and domains for $9.99. It's a pretty great deal. So thank you to GoDaddy for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. All right, Mr. Dominic, before we bring Flo on, I want to uh, head over to uh, Codeship.io where they've got a great site. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> That's that's I, I'm guessing that's your phone. <laughs> that, yeah, always, always. It sounded always. pretty weird through the mic. Uh, yeah. So uh, CodeShip is continuous deployment made easy, and they have a video over at CodeShip.io, and I thought we'd play this so that way we all kind of have uh, a little bit of context of what CodeShip does before we bring Flow onto the show, and then we'll chat with him. Everybody will kind of be on the same page. Here it comes. Ahoy and welcome aboard the CodeShip. The CodeShip is a hosted continuous integration and continuous deployment platform. The CodeShip runs your software tests on fast servers in a secure environment. If all your tests pass, the CodeShip automatically deploys your code for you. This saves you a lot of time. Instead of manually testing and deploying your code over and over again on your own computers, you can focus on improving your product. On the CodeShip, you can connect your GitHub and Bitbucket repositories and run tests for various programming languages and frameworks. The CodeShip can deploy your application to Heroku, EngineYard, and many other platforms. You can set up these deployments with literally a few clicks. Should your tests fail, the CodeShip notifies you and your teammates. A simple email or a message in HipChat, Campfire, or any other group chat will let you know if something is wrong with your application. Give the CodeShip a try. Setting up continuous integration and continuous deployment only takes three minutes. Well, I'm really happy to uh, welcome Flo to the show. He is the CTO and one of the founders of CodeShip. Flo, welcome to Coder Radio. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. When I hear CodeShip, I think of uh, sort of taking the role of the the the, uh, the ops guy where he takes up the code, he deploys it on the server for the developers, he gets it all set up for them, then they come and test on it, and if they say, okay, it's great, now push it to production, and then he pushes it from the test server to the production system, and then it's up on it, it's finally online, it's, it's made public. is Am I following sort of the basics of how CodeShip works? Is it kind of replacing that process? Um, yes, in a sense. So in, in general, um, I mean, automation in general is, is replacing that process. So, I mean, if you use CodeShip, or not, or whichever. I, our opinion is that every step, especially in deployment, should be fully automated. So there shouldn't be any, um, except for like maybe triggering the build or triggering the deployment. That can be done by a human person. But okay. but then everything else should be totally automated because it's it's just it's a tedious process. It can so much can go wrong so easily. So at least like that first step of automating every single deployment step. So it, it's also like when you automate everything and it's just a no brainer. It's just one script you call then you just do it more often because, you know, like you've done it five t times yesterday or maybe three times today. So why not a fourth or a tenth time today? I think that doing that automation as a first step is is super important. And then, of course, services like ours and, and CodeShip just makes it easy. You don't have to run your own infrastructure anymore. You don't have to deal with that. And I think also because you specifically like about the IT admins and stuff and replacing them, I think that 
like the stuff that we specifically replace for them mm-hmm. is probably not the stuff that they really like oh, no. in their hearts you want to work on. Oh, I can tell you from just, experience that's true. Yeah. <laughs> like setting up your own test infrastructure, it's just that's not fun. It's that's tedious. Just, it's tedious. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I, it's, I it's, think I like the idea of um I mean the approach that CodeShip would be taking would sort of have a reproducible uh, setup and environment, right? So I go up there and I say, okay, I have a Python project. I sign up now. Do I do I like I create a do I create an account on CodeShip and then I connect it to a GitHub or Bitbucket account and and can they pull back and forth from that? Exactly. So you just you can log in through through OAuth from from GitHub. So you're logged in in one click, um, and then you just you select which kind of repository you want to use, so either GitHub or Bitbucket at this point. Um, select your repository. Give us your test commands that you want to run, and that's it basically from that moment on we've whenever you push to github or bitbucket to any feature branch anything uh, we'll automatically start a new build we i think one of the especially for test infrastructure one of the hard things is that typically like old artifacts are left behind the database isn't in a consistent state uh-huh. or that something stays back on the system or somebody updates some kind of dependency that you didn't know because there's also a staging <laughs> yes. system. I mean, I've, I ran through all of this. Yeah. And I mean, that was the reason why, why I came up with it or we came up with the idea and, yeah. and we started building that is because it's, it's been so hard and so tedious to run your own systems. Mm. And, and somebody like, as soon as you give, access to that system for somebody else it'll be used for 26 other things that you really don't <laughs> want on their system yes and it's and it's and it's in in our case like we give you a just i think what is what is really important a clean virtual machine it's the same one every time that is completely there is no nothing is left back except for like we we can um cache dependencies so that it's just a little faster oh. but even if there's something like we can remove that cache and you're at a completely fresh and, and clean slate, there 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 can nothing be there can be nothing left behind. So I think that's something to be able to reproduce problems to really have a consistent state is super important because it just removes a couple of possible errors that are just annoying and where you have to go in and debug stuff and just by by removing that kind of error completely, um, it's just easier and nicer hmm. to work. So uh, say I say I, I'm running my project through CodeShip uh, and um, there's a problem and it doesn't mm-hmm. build properly. What kind of tools or analytics are available to me to sort of track down the issue? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, you can just SSH into it. So there we have a debug feature. Okay. Um, so you can just for any build you want to have, um, you just uh, click the debug button on the on the bottom of the page and about 20 to 30 seconds later, um, the, you'll get the SSH command that you put in. So you give us basically your uh, SSH key, your 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 public key. Uh-huh. Um, we'll put that in. So it's totally secure. Only you can get in. Um, and so this way you can just connect to the virtual machine and just do anything you like. Basically, it's it's up for an hour then. Um, okay. And then you can just run any kind of commands. You can even like what some people do to debug uh, stuff is even like do an X forward and see the Firefox really running on their own system and see exactly the interaction, even though it's running on our system. Um, then of course, I mean, we're pretty big on support. So if people write us, we are very happy to to look into stuff and and help them. That's awesome. Uh, obviously, yeah. because yeah. that's I mean, we're a service after all, and yeah. we we want to make this easy. Um, and we have a lot of experience with problems that just happened in the past where <laughs> we can get there easily. And we've also like a couple, like two months ago, we launched something where we, we automatically, so after each build, we automatic, and if it fails, we scan the log for specific error messages that we know that happened in the past and automatically like show you the, 
the correct help page or a link to the help page or something, how you can debug that. That's typically for stuff where we can, we can fix it um, because it's not, so it's something in the code, but we've seen it so many times um, that it just, it happens. Um, mm-hmm. Especially from, for teams that, that move from, that don't have CI or then move to a CI system, there's just a couple of setup steps that, that can go wrong. Um, so we try to like give you the information as early as possible um, what the problem is. Um, so you can now, like uh, get now Flo, not to not to interrupt you. You you mentioned CI several times, and I think some folks in our audience oh. might not be as hip. Sure. Can you just very quickly take a detour and kind of go into the basics of? Uh, I'm assuming you mean continuous integration, right? It, it, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, so basically, that the two main uh, things we're solving is continuous integration and continuous deployment. So continuous integration basically means that uh, whenever any one in your team. Um, changes any part of their, their copies and pushes it to their repository, uh, an automated system should run all the tests, all the unit tests, all the integration tests, everything necessary to determine if that build um, or if that, that change impacted anything else. So the, the nice thing there is that you uh, know very quickly and very easily uh, if something is a problem. Mm-hmm. And if that happens on a feature branch, um, you can fix that on the feature branch, don't impact the master at all, and just everybody's happy. Oh. And so, but the important step is that it has to be automated because um, we, so as developers, I mean, or as humans, we don't like, we, we like to think we'll run the tests every single time, <laughs> yes. um, but we won't. And and it's also, it's just, it shouldn't happen. Like you shouldn't have to, so for example, our workflow is we typically like we code a bunch of things and, and a couple of features or like very small things, even in a feature branch and then push constantly. Like we'll push, like we, we won't wait for the CI system until the, like, feature is done or anything, mm. but push continuously all throughout the day, uh, whenever like something small is ready, just to be sure, like if all the changes I did, do they impact anything else on any p- other part of the system? So I can, like, while I'm still coding on that feature, take that feedback back and, and put it in because we've seen like the problem is that if you just, if you code on your local system and then at the end of the day, push in there right. and then the build fails or like you go to lunch and the build fails and then you have to, to get back in again. But if you do that constantly, um, you're getting feedback all the time. So mm-hmm. um, during your development and, and also, and but the other, the problem is like running your tests in your local system just puts a lot of stress on the system while you're developing it. So you don't want, really want to do that. Sure. So you want to have something, some other system to take care of that. So it sounds like it, that would help catch a lot of snags when you're working with a group of people where you have different folks working on different aspects of a project. But, you know, I think I look at a lot of things from the client services relationship perspective, and I, it, to me, this also sounds like a system that would give a independent developer or a very small development shop tools to sort of scale up to a, lo- a much larger capacity because they could sort of deliver a little bit more solid of a product even as a small team. So do you see – do you find mostly that a large large teams that have a little, maybe a little chaos involved are using CodeShip, or is it more on the – smaller, uh, leaner development shops that uh, just sort of need additional help to, to deliver their, the expectations their clients have? Yeah, so I think it's so, our, basically our current uh, customers are typically small to medium-sized companies or agencies, um, simply because that was our first focus also in all of our marketing and how we approach that. Um, I think that especially smaller shops, it's a lot easier for, for a lot of them mm-hmm. just to get testing in. I think then, then in larger engineering organizations, like maybe like there's in, in larger teams or in, in larger companies, what you've seen, like there is all, there are always teams who, who do testing and who do maybe continuous deployment at this point, but it's hard to move from that one team into every team in the company. 
Um, and I think that in, in smaller teams, just this happens a lot quicker when just they have a small side project, do TDD and then, or as so a test driven development and move like that to the rest of the company that happens pretty quickly because the, like you see that very, so for example, in, in our case, so we define test. So testing is not to make developers happy or development productive, but to get happy users. Because if you have automated tests, then you can just push all the time, like release new features or do changes in your application, um, which makes users happy. And on the other hand, you don't constantly kill your application, which also <laughs> makes users happy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think approaching it from that way also makes it super easy to sell that to the business side of the company. That it's, it's, it's like we're not testing because as a developer, I like to do testing. And we're really testing to make our customers happy and in the end make more money mm -hmm. from it mm -hmm. because we build a long-term and stable product. And I think that's something that is just probably in, in smaller companies, it's just a little easier to sell. And it's just, it's a smaller organization. You need fewer people to, to convince them uh, that that's the way to go. And, but I think that a lot of large companies have, and I mean, there is the Googles and the Facebooks who totally follow, follow in that and who've built huge test infrastructure. Um, but I think that a lot of companies who are just starting out, like trying it in smaller groups, I think mobile is a big step there yeah. where a lot of like, a lot of teams where just mobile are from the teams we've talked to, like typically like external developers that they get in on, get mm -hmm. on board, typically more agile, come from an agency background maybe. So they bring in your practices into the teams. Like you see how that works and then that, that gets to the rest of the, of the company. I think that's, that's an approach that's at least we've seen and we've talked to people who've, who've used that approach to, to bring it into bigger companies. I one thing that you know that uh, Mike and I have talked a lot about is you know trying to streamline, standardize, and automate the testing process. So uh, when when I hear something like this, it almost sounds a little bit like magic. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about some of the technologies that I might recognize that are being used on the back end to to make this happen? Sure. Um, so uh, in general, so we are completely on on Amazon, uh, so completely EC two based. Um, we have our Rails application on, on the front-end side. So what we call our mothership is um, Rails application. And we on the, on the back-end side, we use uh, so larger instances. Um, so some of the largest instances that uh, compute-optimized instances that um, Amazon has. And then do with uh, Linux containers. So for every build, basically, we start a new container okay. um, that is just clean in that sense. And we use that ephemeral, so ephemeral containers. So once the build is done, um, it's just like everything is removed. So uh, um, um, just on the right, we have a, a temporary overlay file system, basically, that's done by those those um, LXC scripts in, in Ubuntu. And just there is a new virtual machine or new container for every build. Um, and then we use Ruby basically for to, to drive um, those containers, SSH into them, run commands and all that stuff. And I've noticed, too, you guys have integration with uh, a lot of notification systems. So if I'm understanding the pipeline correctly, I could – so I push up my code. It gets tested. I could actually have CodeShip deploy it, right? And then, <laughs> then like, ping, like, the GitHub status API or ping camp, like my campfire project, right? Am I understanding that that's the – from end to end, it can actually deploy to production and then let me know what's happened? Exactly. So, so from the, so we have a lot of integration with different deployment providers. So we started with Heroku basically, but now have Engine Yard and Google App Engine and tons of others. And, and you also like, you can also just run your own scripts. So those integrations are just a nice UI on top of 
specific commands we just run for you then. Um, but you can just run your own stuff as well. So you can deploy anywhere. Deploy. I think that's something that is so with the deployment pipelines and like having. Um, so for example, a lot of teams ask us how to do like for example deploy your um, into staging and how to deploy it to production and how to set that up in the in the best way and what our workflow is. And I think that so we push like our master to production uh, immediately immediately without like any integration. So completely continuous deployment. But I think a lot of teams want to have like some manual step in between. And so setting up different branches, so having your master branch deployed to your staging environment and your production branch um, deployed to your production environment um, is a pretty good way to set that up. Because yeah. in your Git repository, there is just like there is one head. There is one last commit on one branch. There there can be because I've I've, I've seen that with um, like a, if you have a UI and a like commit uh, uh, a release or a publish button. Um, there's always like the problem. So if I click this one and the other one, like for two different commits, which one gets deployed? And is it clear that mm. like only these can get deployed? And like, how exactly does it work? And I think that by having that automated through the Git repository, um, where there is just like, there can be no confusion. What's the latest thing that is in the Git repository or on that specific branch? And then like merging is super easy on, or, or like deploying is basically a pull request on GitHub for us. And I think that a lot of people now now started using that that same kind of workflow as well. So it's super visual. You can have a code review um, before uh, deploying, and just somebody else can just click the merge button, and stuff goes out into staging, production, or wherever you need it. So that's pretty often, uh, often awesome. Actually, so you actually. <laughs> I so I didn't know this. I know you can monitor a branch in GitHub and pull it out, but you can actually monitor and you know have CodeShip respond to the merge being approved. Yeah, basically, yeah. So the merge, if you if you merge on on so through a pull request, it's okay. it's as if you would push through to that branch, and we get exactly the same kind of or pretty much the same kind of um, request to the webhook from um, from GitHub at that point. So oh, we start. Okay. So it has to be through the through the web based pull request system. It can't be a local merge and then oh, a push. Sure. Sure, you can. It's it works absolutely oh. the same. So you can do both things. Um, we've just found that at least that's what we use. We do. We like to merge through GitHub because we we do a uh, pull um, uh, a pull review, so, um, um, code review for right. every feature branch. Um, so it, the strict rule for us at CodeShip is that you can't merge or you can never push your own stuff into master. Uh, it's yes. always somebody else who can click that, and it's it's not a tech. So we don't really want to put that into like any kind of technical. Setup. Um, we want everybody to be able to push to master, but we wanted to make it like a social thing that you just you don't do that. It's just it's very 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 forbidden. And I think like over the year there's been like two exceptions to that where we just wanted to have something go out quickly or quicker than than um, than than through a pull request. Um, but and the last one has been quite a while ago, as far right. as I no remember. we we use the exact same process. We, um, yeah. In fact, we do. Pretty much weekly uh, code review, just via pull requests. Mm-hmm. Very quick, yeah. very simple, and that's great that it integrates with that. Let Let me ask you, kind of uh, steering the conversation to something. You know, I'm moving towards TDD or or really BDD, mm-hmm. and I'm finding the process of conversion hard. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I went through. It, it's a tough sell to a lot of people. I think. Yes. What was your, you know, what was your personal, let's say, path to enlightenment on this? Um, So I think for me it was, um, so I started back in university. So I I worked on on university projects or like 
employed there and, and worked on a couple of projects where testing and so code quality wasn't really that big of mm-hmm. a deal for the people. So it wasn't really like it, it was a research project and it wasn't like the software was fine and it was well developed, good developers and all that stuff. But still it was, it was clear that like the workflow in general and that, that wasn't, it wasn't that big of a deal in that setup. And for me, like I always wanted to push. So I always like set up the CI server stand and, and pushed for more like code quality tools and pushed for like static analysis tools to check the, well, we are just because I, I, I think in, in general, I, I'm a workflow person. Like I like proper workflow being in place and I like to know like what's the next steps that are going to happen there and what's like what are we going through so we don't like we we define something that we think is the best way to do it and then we follow through on that um, because then we can't just do errors all the time and I think that from 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 that experience it it, it was for me okay I, I want to go more in that direction and we did like we did have tests and stuff like that but it was like seeing how that evolved and seeing how that works in other projects and just reading a lot about it um, was something for me that I, that was really important. Um, I, right. I thought that, that we should have that. And so basically when we started doing CodeShip or, um, so we started with doing, I wouldn't say test driven from the, for, I mean, we always had tests, we always wrote tests or I always wrote tests then, but I think that it got a lot stronger over time, um, with test driven, um, where we we really gain a lot of experience on how, like, what's the workflow that, that we liked. And in the beginning, I, I developed it for, for a while alone. And then we had um, more people coming in. And I think that especially as soon as you have the, the next developers coming in, um, then it's really important to get that workflow right. Um, because, a, a, like, a good workflow just makes good programmers really great. And a bad workflow just like, takes the best programmers you have, makes them mediocre and Two months later, they're gone because they just hate working like that. <laughs> so right, so I, think right. I think that that really, really getting. And I mean, I mean, we're a workflow like we're a workflow company, so we we like build technical tools for people who want to have a proper workflow. So obviously, like I think workflow is important. But from my experience and from the people I've talked to, I think that's in in software development. As soon as you grow the team, if you don't have the proper process in place, mm-hmm. you you're just not gonna get it. And I think that. And, and, and how to start testing. I think that the, the most important thing is to, to set up the whole, again, the whole workflow, like being able to, so, right. So that's what I've told a couple of teams is just write one, like choose any kind of tool that you want to do testing with and then set up a workflow so that these tests run automatically every time you right. push to your repository and write one test, write the test that logs into your, um, to your site. And they shouldn't like, don't choose the tool that you're going to use in two years, don't think about that. Choose the tool that you can write the tests in comfortably today and write that one test, make sure it works. Yeah. And then put it, put it like, put all the, the, make all the setup steps, like make sure that it, that it works fine and that the tests run. And as soon as those tests run, then, uh, and, and the workflow is in place, then keep coding because as soon as you keep coding them and that's that, like that's been the feedback or that's what I, I, I thought would happen and, and then actually like people started like they had that one test so for a new feature so why not write a second test and write, why not write the next test or right. the next on once you get that. that one started absolutely and, and you're done. Exactly. yeah and I think that that so for for new things like starting like that or like another thing that we've um I've written in a blog post a, couple, a while ago is I think that 
a lot. It's really hard. So testing should always be from top to bottom in, in terms of from the UI. So thinking in testing, like how would the user interact with that? And because then you like, if you think that through and, and do like behavior driven testing, or even like if you just use Selenium or something like that, or like really, then you, you really think about the tests from the opinion of the users and start really top on high on top and then go from that down into your system. And then, so I think that in, in the beginning, if, if there aren't any tests in a, in a code base, mm. it's, it's should be like, you should come down to what are the most important things that I want to have tested and that my, my users really need. So what we've kind of come up with is something where you like, you get the team together um, in, in a room and then basically everybody takes a sheet of paper and writes down their 10 most important workflows uh, for the application. And in the best case, even in the like given when, uh, yeah, given when then uh, syntax that like cucumber or other things use, but whatever, just like the 10 most important things, most important workflows, most important processes in your app. Mm. And then when everybody has them down, like come together, put that list together, like make one big list of all those workflows. It's probably going to be like the same ones anyway, or a lot of the same ones. And then just like, what's the most important one? Write one test for that. And then do that for the like 10 most important ones, which like that can be done if you have the setup with one test done first, that can be done probably in a day or two. You really have like super simple tests for the most important workflows where it just clicks through the application says, okay, if I select this product and put it in here, can I click the buy button and will it show me the receipt in the end? Like if you have that set up and like at least that simple test there, um, and test like the login and like really your most important stuff, then you can be pretty sure that you're not going to kill at least those 10 most important <laughs> workflows and right. you can move from there. And yeah. I think that as developers, we, we, we like to, like when we think about a problem, we like to build it from, from bottom. Like we like to think like if, what is all the things that I need on the bottom so I can build on top of that and on top of that and on top of that, mm-hmm. which is, which like can be fine for developing. But I think for, for getting started with testing, this is, totally hindering us because we we think about like what's what are all the 5000 different situations that my application could be in so i need to write a like a low level test for each one of those and then like the next level and then the next level but but then you're forgetting that actually you're writing the tests for the users to be happy and for your customers to be happy right so that's and and you're actually writing tests to make sure that your system is like works in every single detail which is probably not what's going to make your customers happy overall. Of course, like there need to be those tests at some point or in, in some fashion. But like the most important thing is, does login work? Because like they don't care if why the login doesn't work. The, the important thing is the login needs to work Absolutely. or the buy button needs to work. Yeah. yeah. So you suggest kind of a, um, a small progression towards uh, a test-driven way of doing things. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's setting up your team or I think in general, like setting up your team in a way that it it's it's hard to even tell yourself why you don't write a test. So because you have all the tools in place, everybody knows how to write them. Um, it's like it, it builds a kind of a social pressure for yourself, but also for the rest of the team that, I mean, we, we put all of that work in place. We, we put all of that work in last week to put that workflow in place and put the testing tools in place. Come on, why aren't you writing a test when it only takes you a minute or two or it takes you five minutes? Yeah. So I think that yeah. that's a nice, like you slowly build, like you put yourself in a place right. where you can't really justify to yourself why you don't do it because you've, 
you've you've invested some time already, but not a lot. Like it's not it's not so much time that you you wouldn't be able to do it like today or tomorrow. Um, so you you can get that done. But then next week, um, you already got it. So why not use it? Because you like everybody knows that you should test. I mean, there's there isn't, or I think there are very few people who are of the opinion that you really should not test your software automatically. I think that that fight has been pretty much settled. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's putting your, your organization in a place and like putting that understanding in the place. Like, why are we doing it? For whom are we doing it? And how easy, like it should be easier than, um, there shouldn't be the argument that we won't write a test because it's so hard and takes so long. If you like can take that argument away, um, then there really isn't any justification and except for, I don't like, to. I think kind of what and, you're explaining too, in a way is a bit of a mental game. It, it, it's like, totally. it's because it's, look, it's not that big of a thing you have to bite off. Just start with, like you're saying the, maybe the 10 most important aspects of it, or really just start with the first one and just get that first yep. one done. Make sure login works. And you know, that is a much easier concept uh, for somebody to wrap their brain around and sort of assign a time value to it. But the other thing going back to that whole client services relationship thing is if it's something does fail, you could at least tell the client, well, we did develop a test for it. So we were checking. Um, and yep. I, I think that's a brilliant way because, uh, you know, just some of the systems I've built in the past, it, it becomes like this massive task because like you're saying, I'm looking at all 5,000 potential things that I would need to test for. And it's just so overwhelming. And the time commitment seems so great in that scenario that I honestly just avoid doing it altogether. But if I kind of refocused and just sort of pick the top one and, and really just, uh, you know, some, a little bit of a low hanging fruit that I know I can get done, that sort of gives me a beachhead in there. And I now it's it's a much simpler uh, concept to sort of wrap my brain around. I really like that. Yeah. And I think that that has so I mean, that has developed for us as well over time. So we're like we're really strict about like code quality and testing at this point. But like we weren't when we started three years ago. Um, so it, it's definitely it's something that built over time. And, and I think that's like, you can't, you can push that time that it needs to develop, like to, to have that feeling of like, it's really important and I can't live without it. It's not going to happen in a week and it's not going to happen in a weekend workshop. That's just like, you have to see it every single day that it works, that it catches problems, that it really helps your team and, and makes you more productive and, and like your team and, and your company just more successful in the end. And I think that just is something that needs a little time and a little investment, but like a small in, in small increments, so you see, you're like you're gaining value all the time and you're seeing the value all the time. Yeah. And it's just a mental game. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, Mr. Dominic, I want to just take a quick break right here because I know Let's do it. Uh, one of the things that uh, CodeShip deploys to is our sponsor this week, and that is DigitalOcean. Now, friends, if you're not familiar with DigitalOcean, buckle up because you should be. DigitalOcean is simple cloud hosting dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. Users can create a cloud server in 55 seconds. Now, that's users. See, when you're a pro like me, you can get it down to 47 seconds or supposedly some folks in our audience who got it down to 44. I'm 47. They got to 44. I, I, well, they sent me a screenshot, so I have to believe it. But here's the best part. Pricing plans start only $5 per month. That gets you a rig with 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, CPU, and a terabyte. Yes, friends, a terabyte of transfer. And the best part is DigitalOcean has data centers located in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, and Amsterdam. They have a simple interface with an intuitive control panel, which by the way, power users can replicate on a larger scale with their straightforward API. Now here's how you get started. Go over to digitalocean.com. Go grab yourself a machine and use the promo code Coder Radio February. That's all one word, Coder Radio February. That'll get you a $10 DigitalOcean credit. Now, if you grab the $5 rig like I've been using, that's going to get you two months of a DigitalOcean server. I have an Archbox up there uh, right now. 
that I just deployed Sticked to, which is an open source paste bin alternative that I've been playing with just for passing notes back and forth inside Jupyter Broadcasting and documenting certain things. And the great part is, is that it has syntax highlighting. It supports a lot of different languages. It lets me set a time expiration. So if I don't want the post staying up on the web to get indexed or something like that, I can have it pulled down. And DigitalOcean makes it so easy. Before I deploy anything new to my server, I just back it up using their awesome control panel. And then if something goes wrong, I can revert back to my image. Also, by the way, I can take those images and deploy future servers based on that one. They also have a bunch of ready-to-go droplets with Ubuntu and Docker and Linux containers, all these things that make it super easy. When You can do things like connect to CodeShip, and you really have a nice workflow. So go over to DigitalOcean.com, check them out. They've also got hourly pricing if you just need to test your app for a little while. We love them, been using them for months now. Mr. Dominic deploys a lot of his back-end infrastructure on DigitalOcean, and a lot of people in our audience are doing the same. Coder Radio February is that promo code to get a $10 credit so you can try out a DigitalOcean machine for a couple of months for free. And trust me, you'll just keep finding great uses for it. It has really been a big boost to my infrastructure to be able to just spin something up with great connection. They have a fantastic tier one bandwidth and those SSD drives. I just love it. And I got to say, you know, uh, KVM makes these these machines just fly. The performance is astounding. So a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Coda Radio program. Go use that promo code Coda Radio February to get a DigitalOcean droplet for two months if you get that $5 rig. It's a pretty nice combo. It's a nice setup. Uh, so uh, I know, Mike, you probably got a couple more questions. I got a, I got a question uh, that I wanted to uh, toss to Flo's way just because it's, um, it's, it's a hard question, but I think a lot of people in our audience are probably thinking this in the back of their minds, is it seems like CodeShip could be a, a really handy tool, especially uh, if you're doing a, you know, a lot of rapid deployment. But the first thing I think of as an infrastructure guy is, what happens if code ship goes down? And if you guys had problems with that, and it seems like maybe that's part of the reason why you're on AWS is to have that pretty solid infrastructure flow. So what do you think about that? You guys, you guys are kind of in the middle of a workflow. So it's a pretty key role. You could, you know, worst case scenarios, somebody can't deploy because maybe code ship went down. So how do you guys sort of help prevent that? Yeah, um, yes, absolutely. I mean, as a workflow tool, um, it's super important to be up all the time. And I mean, that's, that's super on our mind. And so I think that one of the most important, like from a infrastructure point of view, one of the most important things for us is um, to have every part of our infrastructure uh, immutable, um, except for our database, because that's not possible. But um, from working on Heroku, where we can just like, it's super easy to ship something new and we don't have to like update any servers or can put servers into a bad state because of a bad deploy. But on Heroku, we just roll back and forth if we need to. And we never had to roll back, thankfully. We always just push forward if something happened. Um, but that's a, that's been something that is really important for us. Um, and we're longer term looking to build more on top of, uh, for our front end, more on AWS itself, um, just to have replication in all different parts um, of the world, basically. So we really can't like do the Netflix model of you really can't go down. Mm. And... So there's something that we definitely putting uh, a lot of resources into now, um, even more so than in the past. Now that we've got a little more resources in place, um, and just to build that because we've like we want to be at the center of um, people's development workflow, and that needs to be super stable and up all the time. Yeah, and I think so. How we deal with that, especially on our test infrastructure, is for so we're we're. There's a big believers in, in immutable infrastructure. So basically, whenever we push a new code change to our GitHub repository, um, we use Packer. So that's, I don't know if you've guys heard of that. That's from the guys who, so from Mitchell Hashimoto, who did Vagrant. 
Um, it's basically you have a JSON config file and it builds a machine image. So for VirtualBox, for DigitalOcean, huh. for um, AWS or any else. Um, so basically, whenever we push to, to our uh, repository, we build a new Amazon machine image. And then we can, from that machine image, uh, start new service uh, anytime. So what we also do, like we, we just activate or deactivate specific AMIs. So we say, okay, this one is the one that's now active. And we want the, the, so we, the automatic scaling um, to only use that image or so we can shut down other services that we don't want. And so if we deploy anything that is like slightly problematic or we, if we see like there's some problem with it, it it takes us one click to disable um, current machines. So if there's a fault in our AMI and we have, of course, we have a large integration test suite that makes sure that everything is installed, all the databases are there, all the mm-hmm. tools are there and everything that's necessary. Um, but then we can just go back with one click basically. Uh, and and we're back to a to a state where we where we, th- that we knew that we knew that worked. Yeah. And because we, we we didn't update like because we always started from that one uh, AMI on on Amazon. It's clear like if it worked before, it's gonna work again because it's exactly the same files. It's exactly the same thing that's gonna start up. Yeah. Um. So that's been for us. I think that that's been super helpful. And I think that having something like that in place where you, and, and that enables us to really push a lot and push a lot of changes all the time uh, into, into production, because yeah. we always know like going back to an earlier version, like, first of all, of course we have tests for everything in place and it's really deep tests there, but also that if anything goes wrong, um, it's probably like most customers will not notice because it takes us like a minute or two um, at most to to go back to to a state where everything works. That's nice. So if there is a boo boo, uh, it's a pretty quick uh, revert back to a good working state. Yes. Yes. Point. Absolutely. That's been that's been super important from the beginning for us because it's. I think that as a small team, um, it's it, there is no like you need to be really really fast. So you need to be able to to like get that that product market fit and really get the stuff that customers and and, and users want out there. So you need to be really, really, really fast. Um, but you can't be really fast if you don't have like the tests and the workflow and the rollback and everything in place. So if something goes wrong, um, you can just move back. And I think that's something that we really believe in very strongly wow. and to have every part of our infrastructure um, built in a way that we can go back and forth yeah. easily. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. Uh, all right, Mr. All Dominic, right. is there anything else we want to cover? No, I think we should let Flow get back to work. I mean, you know, the ship needs to stay afloat. <laughs> That's right. Oh, we don't want. <laughs> All right. So the site is uh, codeship.io, and uh, you guys can go check that out. They've got uh, they got a great video on their website too, which you can watch to see it all explained. Well, Flow, thanks for thanks a bunch for coming on the show today. It was a great chat with you and great insights on testing methodology, and it's really fascinating what you guys are working on. Um, Thanks like for having me, guys. Yeah, you bet. Uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, keep us posted on how things go in the future, okay? Yes, definitely. Oh, oh and how do you pronounce the last name? Uh, Motlik. So Motlik. Okay. Motlik, yeah. Mot- I didn't get close, I don't think. I think I uh, pretty it. much. Yeah. I think you went Maltic. <laughs> Dang it. Was, oh, man. Uh, well, but I heard, I heard that often, so that's, that's a very typical, like, mispronunciation okay so you're you're super you're, you're gracious super you're too gracious <laughs> all right Flo, you're we'll, nice to him don't yeah, be nice you to don't him. have to be i it's it's, it's awful yeah. it's a horrible problem <laughs> i have all right well thanks yes. a bunch for coming on the coda radio program we enjoyed our chat sure thanks yeah you thank bet. you bye guys thank you 
All right, Mr. Dominic. Well, very good, sir. So, uh, you know, we need to get some emails in here because uh, we always like to have uh, folks' feedback. So if you uh, have any comments on what we chatted about today with Flo or any other topics you want to ask us, send those in. You can go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click on the uh, contact link, and then choose Coda Radio from the dropdown. Fill in your form and send it in to us, or you can email us, coderadio at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And I should probably give one last plug to that subreddit, coderadio.reddit.com. There we go. Anything, any other uh, business you want to attend to before we wrap up? You know, I think we're in a pretty good place to wrap. Uh, I think we have a lot of meaty uh, information about TDD. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. I agree. All right. Well, uh, very good. It was uh, great to chat with Flo. And uh, we'd love to have you join us live so you can hang out in our <laughs> chat room and interact with us and also help us name the show. Just go to jblive.tv on a Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern. You can also go to jblive.info for the audio versions. If you're in the car, maybe you're sitting at a desk and they don't like your streaming video. That's another good way to go. Mr. Dominic, if I was going to send people your general direction throughout the week, if they wanted more Dominic, where would they go? Oh, they might go to uh, DominicM.com. Could. Could do that. Yeah, we'll also have links to our Twitter profiles in the show notes. And we'll have links to Codeship and some of the things we talked about, like Packer, in the show notes as well. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of Coda Radio. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>